Okay, John chapter 6. This semester we have been studying the life of Jesus, asking the question, who is the real Jesus? And hopefully, hopefully being willing to consider that the real Jesus may be different, may be different than we think he is. One of the mottos, you know, this is Reformed University Fellowship. I don't know if you knew that or not. But um, somebody asked me the other day, well, which is it? Is it Reformed or Reforming? Like, you say Reformed like you're already finished. And you've got it right and nobody else does. And yet, you know, when we say Reformed, what that means is that we find ourselves in um, the Christian tradition, a particular aspect of it, that emphasized at the Reformation this idea that Christians and people are in continual need of being reformed by God and His Word. And that's not just a one-time event, it's a continual need. Therefore, when we gather together, we sing, we pray, we take the sacraments, and we sit under the preaching of the Word, because we need to be reformed. And, you know, tonight we're going to look at this aspect of Jesus, that Jesus teaches hard things. Jesus teaches hard things. Now, I know the NIV has the little title, The Bread of Life Discourse. But the Bread of Life Discourse has all kinds of hard things, and it has the effect of driving the crowds away. Jesus has the crowds. This uh, little story, or this discourse, this sermon that we're going to read, really it's a theological argument that he has with uh, some Jewish leaders, but this argument takes place right after he's fed a crowd of 5,000 people. Then he slips away. The disciples go across the lake, and lo and behold, Jesus is among them walking on the water. Gets to the other side of the lake, and the crowd figures out he's went around to the lake, and they come around there to be with him. And then he speaks these words to him. So if you have the Bible there, look at John chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 25. Now you know the context. But I want you to see, this, the things that Jesus says here are difficult. They're difficult, more difficult to accept than they are to understand. Um, but difficult nonetheless. And it's not just me who thinks so. This is what the disciples said, as we're going to see in this passage. John chapter 6, verse 25. When they, that means the crowd, found him, Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's quoting the Old Testament. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to Me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. That's the story we read last week, right? He was in Capernaum. He drove a demon out of the church service. Keep going a little bit more. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. I know that's a long passage. Let me pray and then we will dig into this. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even though there's a lot of it to cover, we pray that you would help us not only to understand, but to accept and to submit to 
the Jesus that we find here in this passage, to submit to you, the one who is and was and is to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two big points tonight. What does this passage teach us about who the real Jesus is? And what does this passage teach us about what it means to follow this, this Jesus? Did it bother you that people who are described as disciples turn and follow Jesus no more? It should. There are a lot of people who follow Jesus who may not be following Jesus. There are people who come to Jesus who Jesus says they still need to come to me. I mean, the crowd quite literally came to where Jesus was. They saw him across the lake. They went around the lake. They came to him and he said, you still need to come to me and you can't come to me unless the father draws you. And you don't believe. He tells them over and over again, you don't believe. And yet they've come to him. A lot of questions, not just about who Jesus is, but about what does it mean to be his disciple and to follow him from this passage. Now, you know, what what do we learn about who Jesus is? Let's start with that. A number of points here, but look back at the, the passage back in verse 37, and you see this. Jesus has the crowds. He has the crowds, but his goal is so much bigger than having the crowds. He is called, look at what he says here in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus' goal is much bigger than just attracting some fans. Jesus doesn't care, really, if he's very popular. He seems actually to do things to make himself less popular all the time. And this is, this is a classic example, but there's a lot of examples in the Gospels where Jesus does things that confuse people, that even drive people away. And how does that fit with this, with this stated purpose? This stated purpose, I've come down to do the will of my Father, to seek after people, to to take all these that the Father has given me and to to draw them to myself and to keep them unto the last day. Not only that, but in John 17, at the very end of Jesus' life, in what's called his high priestly prayer, the last public prayer he prays before he's crucified, he says in that prayer, I've done the work you gave me to do. I thank you, Father, that I have lost none of the ones that you gave me except for Judas, but he was a son of perdition from the beginning. He's, you know, regularly kind of making a special case for him, which we won't talk about too much tonight, I'm afraid. There's not, not time to talk about everything. But he's, he's got this mission. He says, this is my mission. He doesn't fail in his mission. And that has to be the, 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 the framework through which you understand what Jesus is doing in this parable, or sorry, in this story, in this sermon. Somehow, Jesus saying things that confuse people and upset people fits in with his stated goal and will of bringing people to a knowledge of himself, which means 
that I think sometimes we think we understand what Jesus is doing, but we may not really understand what Jesus is doing. In other words, sometimes we're really mistaken about what Jesus' real mission is and what steps he should take to accomplish it. This doesn't seem like Jesus is doing what he should be doing. But I would suggest to you, based on all the things he says here about the nature of true faith, that it may actually be part of of the way that he's going to get to this goal to drive away people who really aren't interested in anything more than getting their bellies full. He does nobody a favor by letting them think that they have a relationship with him. And while it may seem harsh, as a matter of fact, I mean, they're confused. They think that he's talking about cannibalism, and he doesn't explain himself. He actually pushes the point even more. And it's based certainly on him knowing things that you and I don't know about people. So I'm not saying that when people come up to you and they're interested in finding out about Jesus, that you deliberately drive them away. But I am saying that you would be in good company if some of the things you say freak people out and they're not really that sure that they still want to know more about Jesus. Because that's what Jesus experienced all the time. So he has the crowds, but his goal is much bigger. Do you, do you have room in your understanding, room in your heart for a Jesus like that? For a Jesus who says, my goal is not to get the biggest crowds that I can get. My goal is to bring about true followers of me. Jesus, uh, Jesus, Jesus never wants to let himself be, you know, fit and squeezed into our little category. Second, second point, Jesus is the one worth laboring for and spending all that we have to obtain. Look at what he says. Now, this is fascinating. What they ask him, it's, I always love how people ask Jesus questions and he answers completely different questions. He does it all the time. He does it in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, you know, Rabbi, you know, it, you know, let's have a nice discussion. He says, you must be born again. And he turns it into an argument. He does the same thing here. They say, Rabbi, when did you get here? You know, that seems like a nice... And he says, I tell you the truth. Now, that's a strong, emphatic statement. I swear upon a stack of Bibles. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs. You don't care when I got here. You just want more food. That's what he says. Now, that's just... That's bizarre, isn't it? And you know what's interesting? Jesus, Jesus is not, not off base at all here. Because earlier in chapter 6, right after he fed the 5,000 people, do you know what they tried to do? The, the Gospel of John says they tried to make him, the crowd tried to make Jesus king by force. And he had to slip away from them. Now that actually makes a lot of sense in the first century because emperors and leaders all the time were giving free food to people so they could get their political support. But Jesus is not interested in their political support. He's interested in feeding them, but he's not feeding them so that he can get them, you know, rah-rahing for Jesus. He's not really that interested in that. But he says, listen, what really matters is that you spend your labor, your effort, you make your life's goal to pursue this bread that won't spoil. Why do you waste all of your time and your effort on bread that's going to spoil? We're all working for something, you know. Woe are you if you don't have any idea of what it is. 
you really should take some time to think about that question. What am I really working for? And is it worth it? But you know, we're all working for these things that we think can give us peace, hope, security. But look at what Jesus says. He says our only hope is actually not in what we can work for, but in what the Son of Man will give us. Uh, this verse has always been one of my favorites because it, it, it just speaks to me and I think speaks to most people who've been raised in church who are still trying to figure out what is the thing I need to do that will finally get God to like me and do what I want him to do. What is the work that I have to do? If I could just figure it out, then I'll do it. We're always so naive to think that if God just told us what he had for us, if, if we knew God's will for our lives, we think we would do it. And I always say, well, you know, in, in, Paul says to the Thessalonians, God's will is that you flee sexual immorality. Work on that, and when you're ready for more, we'll come back, and I'll tell you some more. There's lots of God's will that we're not really interested in obeying. I know I'm being a little, a little over-extreme in the way I state that, but, but the point is, we're so naive if we think all we need to do is know what to do. All we really need is for God to tell us what to do. And Jesus here completely confounds them, but actually gives them the only basis for hope when he says this, The work of God, the work that God requires, they ask. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What really matters is not the works that you think you're going to do for God. The work that matters is the work that God is going to do to create belief in people's hearts. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's what matters. And then the the irony, they go on and say, well, what miraculous sign will you give? And of course, the miraculous sign is the fact that some believe. That's always a miracle. When later in this passage, Peter confesses faith in Christ, that's the huge miracle. Feeding 5,000 people pales in comparison to that. That's easy. Multiplying some food. But changing the heart of someone who hates God and wants to do everything themselves, thinks they know better than God, hearts like yours, hearts like mine, that's the real work. And that's the work that's required to believe. Jesus is is greater than Moses. The next next point, as you go down a little bit, they, they say, okay, well, they're still trying to figure out Jesus. And and one of the things that they're always trying to do is they're trying to put him into a category of something they feel that they already understand. So they bring up this whole idea about Moses and how our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what are you going to do? They're saying, it seems that you're, you know, you're talking about bread here and and bread. And you're saying, um, you know, that they're, yeah, this idea of bread. And they start thinking about, well, yeah, we know about bread. We know about God giving bread, and God gave this sign of bread, and that's why Moses is so great. Surely you're not comparing yourself to Moses, are you? And yet Jesus is saying, I am so much greater than Moses. Now, the crowd is a little confused. They actually think that Moses gave them the bread, even though the Old Testament itself clearly says that God gave the bread through Moses. But Jesus says, I am giving you bread. In other words, I'm so much greater than Moses, and I'll show you that in a couple ways. One, 
The bread came through Moses, but I am the bread. The provision came through Moses. I am the provision. God provided through Moses, but he provides in Jesus. Moses, or actually more accurately, God through Moses, gave signs like the bread in the wilderness, but Jesus is the sign of signs. So they're asking Jesus for a sign, but he is the sign. He doesn't have to do little miracles for them, and he won't do little miracles for them, because Jesus knows that faith that is only a response to miraculous signs is not faith worthy of the name. Back in chapter 2, there's disciples that follow Jesus because of a miracle, and it says there very specifically that he did not trust himself to them because he knew that their faith was not up to snuff. That doesn't mean that your faith has to be perfect and you must never doubt to be on God's team. It means that their faith was not in the real Jesus. What matters is the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. But they don't have faith in Jesus for who he is, and he knows that. Jesus is the true manna that God provides. You remember in the book of Exodus, God gives bread from heaven to his people. It's called manna. And it's a powerful picture of the way God is the one who provides even for the most basic of our needs. And Jesus here is saying, I am what the manna pointed to. The real Jesus is the true manna that God provides. Jesus is continually claiming, here's the thing, If you want to understand who Jesus is, you have to take this into account. Jesus is continually claiming that he is the basic stuff we need for life. In other words, he is not something you add on to your life. He's not some spice or seasoning to give your life a little zest, where you kind of whip up your own recipe and then you add a little dash of Jesus to make it better. That's not what Jesus is about. Jesus is... The basic stuff of life, bread, water, the stuff you need for life. And that's a huge huge point. Not only that, but the word he uses for life here is is an interesting word. There are two Greek words for life. Bios, which refers to mere biological existence, and zoe. And zoe means life. There's life and there's life. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Yeah, you almost have to be Italian to say that, don't you? And I'm not, so I'll stop. But Jesus said, you know, if you don't have me, you may have life, but you don't have life. And yet the sad thing is, you know, I, I can think of, you know, kind of the story of my life and how, Often, even when I had Jesus, I didn't really want life. I, I, I didn't want to enter into the ups and downs of real life, even though I had Jesus. But you know what? Jesus is going to bring that to your biological existence. In other words, Jesus is committed to bringing life to your life. Because he is the bread of life. And those that know him, those that know him, he wants that to be reflected into the world. That if you know Jesus, you know and you're tasting the bread of life. Yet Jesus is a really unlikely candidate for being the bread of life. And that's what what these people say. Look at verse 41. 
At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven or I come down from heaven? See, they can't imagine the possibility that Jesus might be more than they have experienced so far. How about you? How about you? Can you imagine the possibility that Jesus might be more than you've experienced him to be? How tragic, how tragic when we think we've got Jesus figured out. They think they know where he came from, and that explains it all. And I I, I think that none of us are ever very far away from that temptation. How tragic when we do that, and how arrogant. Jesus is the bread of life, and I don't think you'll ever exhaust that. Jesus, you see, is the one who requires us to invent new categories. The old ones don't fit. You see, they're trying to fit him into the category of Moses. Moses was a prophet. You're a prophet. They're trying to fit him into that category, but Jesus won't let them do that. And you always see this in the Gospels. An encounter with Jesus always drives people to have to come up with new, encounter, new categories for reality. New categories like fully God and fully man. See, nobody had that, those categories before Jesus came, and they were driven to that conclusion because there was no other explanation. And yet, in a lot of ways, it's not really an explanation. It's a description. I found out recently how many, what I thought as is, is kind of a layman, non-medical person, how many things that I thought were diagnoses are really just descriptions. Whenever they say itis, that just means you have inflammation or something. It doesn't tell you why. I always thought, oh, well, I've got this itis. And no, that's just a description. And so much of theology is that way, you know. To say that, God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You know, as theologians have wrestled with that over the, over the centuries, they know some things about, well, it can't mean this and it can't mean that because that would contradict this scripture or that scripture. We're still not really that sure about what does it mean for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. It's a new category. They were driven to this new category by the reality of who he is. The disciples were not people who believed that, that people just raised from the dead. Certainly not physical bodies. Nobody believed that. I know sometimes they tell you that Greek mythology and whatnot had ideas of gods raising from the dead. Not physical bodies. Nobody had that belief. And yet these disciples, these monotheistic Jewish men, were driven to the belief that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he died and was raised again. None of that really makes very much sense. That God would take on flesh, that even if he did, that he could die And that if he died, his body would be resurrected, glorified. See, Christian theology, believing in Jesus requires you to come up with all kinds of new categories. The old ones don't fit. But sometimes we refuse, we refuse to adopt new categories. Sometimes we we just say, "Ah, no. Jesus teaches things that sometimes people just say, no. No. I won't accept that. I can't believe that. Jesus Jesus teaches hard things that drive away the crowds, and Jesus teaches hard things that confuse his disciples. Look at these two ideas. The first, he's talking here about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And you have to know, 
All the cultures in the Mediterranean area, including the Middle East here, they all thought cannibalism was about the worst thing imaginable. Horrific idea. And here's this guy, this prophet, standing up, telling people they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they're like, they're getting upset about this. In verse 52, they argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus does not back down. Jesus does not say, well, you know, don't take me literally. I didn't really mean that. What I meant was this. He actually says that in verse 63, after the crowds have left. After the crowds have left, he explains to his disciples, to the twelve, I don't mean you need to literally eat my flesh. But he doesn't do that for the crowds. He presses it even more. See, it's not enough for the people to be impressed by his miracles or wowed by his teaching. Their deepest need and the one that Jesus is committed to meeting is to have his life be given for them. It's not enough for them just to follow him around and be impressed by him. And he knows that their problem is not just a lack of understanding. For him to settle the issue of their understanding may be actually even to court the possibility that they would think that they know Jesus and follow him around for a long time when they've never actually had to stumble over who he really is. Sounds like a lot of southern churches I know. <laughs> it does. I mean, this is the thing. You see, if Jesus walked into our churches, I think he would say these kinds of upsetting things. Now, I don't think this would actually upset us. There would be other things he could say that would upset us. But Jesus would be loving to do that. Because Jesus does not want people thinking that they have a relationship with him just because they're impressed by him and they like to be around him. It's not the same thing. And the really dangerous thing is when you think it's the same thing. And Jesus does not allow that illusion to remain. He drives them away. He is, as the Bible had predicted, the rock that makes men stumble. But that's part of his grace to do that. He knows their problem is not merely a lack of understanding. Their problem is a refusal to submit to who he is and what he's bringing. And that is the key to salvation, a relationship of submission to who he is and what he's bringing. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said it this way, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. How are these people going to get to that point if they think, hey, me and Jesus are buds. He feeds me and I worship him and everything's great. That's not discipleship. It's not what it means to be a real follower of Jesus. So he drives away the crowds. But then he also teaches hard things that confuse his disciples. And this, this is, you know, for a lot of people in this room, this is the aspect of this passage that's really upsetting. There are a couple things that confuse the disciples in this passage, both then and now. But they really boil down to one thing. Why does, why does Jesus drive away the crowds? Why does Jesus not bend over backwards to make it easy for these people to accept him. I mean, doesn't Jesus want everybody to accept him? And doesn't he do everything in his power to make it easy for people to accept him? Isn't he up there in heaven wringing his hands, wondering why more people don't accept him? It's not the picture Jesus gives here in this passage. And that's challenging. And that's hard. You know, the question is, why does Jesus bring up 
heavy theology, even if I could use the word predestination kind of ideas about the Father drawing people, and no one can come to me unless the Father draws them, and all that the Father gives me will come to me. Those are, those are pretty strong theological statements. Why does Jesus bring that up to the crowds and have them be driven away? The disciples wonder that. They're, they don't like that. Have you ever found yourself wondering why Jesus does what he does in salvation? If you're not, I submit you haven't thought very much about Christianity at all. These kinds of things confuse Jesus' followers. Again, the answer, I think, is, is partly because Jesus doesn't really want fans. He wants disciples, people who will follow him even when they're confused because they've tasted and know that there is no life anywhere else. But following Jesus does not mean that that you're always going rah-rah, Jesus. Yeah, that's the way. Uh, You know, hard, this word hard, when it says it in verse 60, this is a hard teaching, it doesn't mean difficult. That word doesn't mean difficult as much as it means hard to accept. And this is one of those issues but you need to, you know, before we get into that, and I'm going to talk about it in just a second, you need to understand this. Jesus is the one who gives himself for the world. Now, this is part of the, part of the tension. There's always this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You see side by side in passages like his in John 6, strong statement about God's sovereign grace. And I would even go so far as to put it this way. One of the things that Jesus is saying over and over again in this passage is that salvation is God's to give to who he wants. It's not our birthright. That's a hard thing to accept because we all feel that we deserve a chance to which the Bible would say a chance won't help you diddly squat. You need resurrection from the dead. But God doesn't owe that to anybody. He doesn't owe that to anybody. And if you find someone who's passed from death to life, well, there you have evidence that the sovereign power of God has been at work. That Jesus says it as plain as could be. No one comes to the Father. There is no one who comes to the Father, no matter what they may think, no matter what they think they did, no one comes to the Father unless, or no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. But he goes on, actually, and says, That, but then in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the the last day. But then he also says here that whoever comes to me, the Father gives me, will come to me. So that's, that's a pretty strong kind of statement. And yet, in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That's very much open invitation kind of language. So you have side by side, Jesus saying, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And there is a certain group of people even that the Father has given to the Son and I will draw them to myself. And yet at the same time, it's mixed right in with, come to me, come to me. Now, I can't explain to you how both of those things fit together. I can only tell you that the real Jesus believes in both of those things very strongly. And if you would be his disciple, 
Well, then you better be someone who invites people freely and eagerly to come to Jesus. At the same time, you recognize that God himself is sovereign over all things. He's not a frustrated, whining little savior. But I can't tell you exactly how that works together. I can only tell you that that's true. And we need to believe it. This is, this, I've talked some about this already. It's, it's, if you turn the outline over, I'm on point 10. Jesus' mission, guys, is not a failure. He was not a failure. Does this mean we're robots? No. You can read that if you want. I want, to, I want to jump to this in our last few minutes. What do we learn about following Jesus from this passage? I, I, I said this already, but it's worth reiterating. If Jesus is the bread of life, it means that he's not a spice that you add to your life. He is the basis of life that is really life. Trying to use Jesus as a means to an end, and we all do this. Trying to have a little bit of Jesus to go along with all the things that we're really working for will never give you a true taste of who Jesus is. It's hard to know what Jesus tastes like until you've lost your taste for other things. It's hard to know what Jesus really tastes like until you take a big old bite. A little nibble doesn't really do it. And yet, you know, see, we all think that the best way to know things, the safe way to know things, is sort of kind of stand back, examine it all. Yeah, maybe I'll put my toe in the water. Jesus continually says, that's not the way you'll know me. I would su- submit to you, it's actually not the way you know anything. There's nothing that you know that didn't involve personal risk and the possibility that you might be wrong and you might look like a fool. You ever asked anybody out on a date? <laughs> you can't do that without risk, no matter how you try. Even if you have a DTR talk before you ask the girl out, guys, <laughs> she still might not be telling you the truth. How do you know? So I'm saying you can't know Jesus unless you dive in. That's why the Bible uses language like taste. And that's why Jesus says, you will know the truth when you do the truth. That's why he says things like, abide in me. And see, down in verse 63 is when Jesus says, look, the words are life. So when you put this whole passage together, he's saying, the bread, I am the living bread, and it's my words that are really the way you access this, but you don't figure out my words unless you eat them and take them in. You don't stand back in the position of a skeptic and really figure out what Jesus is about. You can't really do that. Following Jesus, like any other relationship, involves jumping in. We don't like that, but there's no other way. He's not a spice you add to your life. He's the base of life. And his sacrifice demands our sacrifice. See, in verse 51, if Jesus is giving his life, his flesh, and that's, you know, that's very much you know, language of the cross there in verse 51. He is going to give his life, future tense. He's talking about something that's still ahead for him, for the world. And in John's gospel, the world doesn't refer as much to the number of people, but it refers to the kind of people. In, in John's letters and in the gospel of John, when, when, God says, when it says God loved the world, what's astonishing is not how many people he loves, what's astonishing is the kind of people he loves. The world epitomizes those who are traitors and rebels against God. And here Jesus is saying, I'm giving my flesh for the world, for my enemies. That's astonishing. But when you realize that, 
then you can sing with Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And I would submit to you that the degree to which you understand that Jesus gave his life, his flesh, for you, and you understand that you are the world, those who are opposed to Jesus, and he loved you and gave his life for you anyway, to that degree, and only to that degree, will you give yourself to Jesus. Those things are always linked. Following Jesus, you see, often seems like insanity. And I love, that's one of the things I love about this passage. My sense of, the, of Peter's tone of voice is, yeah, we, we want to follow you. Where else can we go? But there's very much this implication that if there was another option, we'd be taking it about now. We thought you were here to vanquish the Romans. And now you've gotten rid of the crowd. How can you stir up a popular revolt if you get rid of the crowd, Jesus? We're out here, we're out here in the suburbs, as it were, to stir people up so we can take Jerusalem. And now you just got rid of the crowds. What are you doing? There, you know, there's evidence that that's what drove Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He was a zealot. And when Jesus disappointed him and refused to go along with that agenda... He started looking for another option. A true disciple is one who, as much as they would like to, in the end, has to say, Jesus, there's no other option. There's no other option. I have nowhere else to go where there is life, but man, sometimes this is hard, and I don't like this. Do you know that that's what it means to be somebody who follows Jesus? That's what following Jesus feels like. That's what we learn from this passage. True disciples are those who say, what choice do we really have? There really is no other life. And yet, and yet, sometimes we really wish there were. Need to feed on Jesus. That's another thing. You know, Jesus describes relating to him and being his disciple as feeding on him and interchange intertwines all these ideas of abiding i think the niv translates it remaining in him that's the idea of abiding in him with eating his flesh with his word he talks about in verse 63 his word all these ideas are are overlapping ideas and you what you get out of it is this We need to feed on Jesus even when we sometimes choke on some of his words. Because here's a great example of people trying to feed on Jesus and choking on his words. The Spirit gives life through the words of Jesus, not through eating his little flesh. That's what he says in verse 63. But the words don't just inform us. See, if Jesus had never brought up the bread and had just said, listen to my words, I think we would misunderstand what he means. We may be tempted to think that all it means to follow Jesus or be in relationship with him is to know the words and to like the words and to even try our best to obey the words. But he doesn't say that. He compares the words and equates it even with bread, which means that these words are words of life, words that nourish us, words that don't just inform us, but they form us. They transform us. Tim Keller puts it this way, the image of bread teaches us that we take Jesus in and he becomes part of us and empowers us, just like in digestion. In other words, the way that we get life is not intellectual, it's not mystical, but it's through these bread words that are the way to abide in Jesus, drink him in, and hear and believe. All those ideas are equated and intermingled in this passage. 
but it's grace alone which can give us faith in his words. Faith, grace alone. And that's what you get here. Peter's confession in verse 68, you alone have the words of life. Did you notice that that's actually a response to what Jesus declared up in verse 63? Jesus himself said, the words I have spoken to you are life. And Peter, lo and behold, confesses that very thing. But according to what Jesus has said in this passage, the only way that that Peter can respond that way is if the sovereign work of God has been working in his life. Praise God for his grace, even though there are aspects of it that confuse us, upset us even. But there is no other, there is no other life. Pray to the God of all grace to draw all people to himself, to exercise his sovereign power, to summon people. I I remember one time somebody was debating this passage people from two different theological perspectives debating this passage and saying, you know, this passage talks about, you know, this, this people being drawn. And that word, that word drawn in the Greek, you know, is really the word used for drawing water from a well. And this guy was like, oh, really? Oh, gosh, I didn't know that. I'd never heard that before. And then he thought about it for a second. He said, well, wait, how do you get water out of a well anyway? Do you say here, water, water? <laughs> no. <laughs> you have to get it. You have to get it. So th- this is a strong word. This is a strong word. When Peter says this, this is a miraculous thing. That's why in the other Gospels, when Peter makes this kind of confession, what does Peter, Jesus say? He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not taught you this. Saying the same thing here. The same thing here. Flesh and blood has not taught Peter this. Flesh and blood has not taught us this or whoever receives these words you do not have any basis upon which to pat yourself on the back for that. And finally, this last, last point. One more point about bread. This, I get this from Tim Keller, and I think it's so, so powerful and so helpful. And I want to leave you with this thought. The more we abide and feed on Jesus and his word, the more we should come and do come to embrace reality. Now, I'm not saying just reading his word, but I'm saying imbibing it. One thing that's true of all false breads, whether it be alcohol, whether it be perfectionism, the idea that I can control my world and other people if I just do things perfect enough. All of those false breads, the only way they can really give you hope and peace and security is by clouding your sense of reality. The gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, is the one thing that should make you feel better the more deeply it gets into you the more it helps you see, the more clearly you see it, the better you are and the better off you are emotionally. False breads work just the opposite. False bread, these false breads that spoil, that we put all of our effort into, the way they work is by clouding our sense of reality, hiding reality from us, either by distracting us Christians are those who should be coming more and more into touch with reality as they imbibe, take in, and practice the words of God. Because that's the key. It's not enough, as James says, to just be a hearer of the word without being a doer of the word. As you embrace these words and they become reality, it gets you more in touch with reality. Let's let's pray together. Lord, we pray that that would be true of us. That we would come to follow you, not just to be impressed by you, 
not just to enjoy being around you, hoping some of your glory might spill off onto us. Lord, we pray that we would be true disciples. Those who realize that there is no other life. And so, Lord, to that end, would you show us how these other things that we look to for life really are things that we're spoiling, things that are clouding reality? Show us the truth about these false breads in our lives. And then, Jesus, show us and be for us the true bread that nourishes, that gives us not just life, but life. And Lord, would you give us such a holy discontent for anything less that we could follow you more fervently, love you more dearly. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray that it would connect with us more. We pray that you give us courage to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.